So I think that the advice I'd give to women is leadership does not look like one thing. It doesn't look like one person or one stereotype. You can absolutely bring your authentic self to a leadership role and make it your own. It doesn't have to look like perhaps what you have imagined or what you have painted in your mind. Welcome to NPS I Love You, a podcast powered by Catalyst. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and this show is all about awesome people, ideas, and stories, all with a customer success twist. On NPS I Love You, I talk to everyone from artists to scientists, CEOs to CSMs, and everyone in between to give you powerful insights that will help you in your career and in life. Jamie Buss is Senior Vice President of Sales at Zendesk, and in this episode, Jamie and I discuss sales and CS collaboration, leadership, battling stigma, and an epiphany that Jamie had that profoundly affected her life. So, curious to learn, what's the first sales job that you ever had? When you think back to it now, what comes to mind? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I actually started off in sales as a sales engineer, but I did that for maybe two and a half years. It wasn't a terribly long time. But what I found that I loved most about that job was winning more than anything else. Such a salesperson response. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I wanted to be SC of the quarter. I wanted to, you know, I want to spiff for the biggest deal for the quarter, that type of thing. So I was really, really well incentivized by recognition and by winning. And I have to be honest, I didn't love the engineering component of it. I didn't love coding. I can do it, but my brain has to work really, really hard. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't naturally think that way. And so when it was time for me to find my next opportunity, I decided I'm going to drop the engineering component of my job and just go for sales. And I think even today, when I interview for salespeople, whether they're leaders or reps, the things that I realized to look for are an innate competitiveness, Mm -hmm. not a general like, oh, I did sports in college. That's not necessarily competitive, right? I'm looking for the people who, you know, in fifth grade math class had to have as many stars on the board as possible. I'm looking for that type of person because, you know, that plus team player, I think are really important components because as you know, it's hard to be a lone wolf in sales. You Mm -hmm. always have to have a success or sales engineers or partner channel sales, you have a lot of players that you have to work with if you're going to be successful. So I think that innate competitiveness and teamwork were something that I really realized were super important and what drew me to sales and what I continue to look for today and in, in people that want to follow in that path. That's really cool. I like the sort of different definition that you gave there of, of competitiveness. Was that, were you that kid? Were you always competing to have one extra star than the person next to you? I didn't realize how competitive I was, but yes, I wanted to have the highest math score. In high school, I wanted the highest AP English grade, which I had. I just always wanted to do the best I could. Yeah. I didn't always, you know, I wasn't always top of the class at everything, but I always felt like you always put your best effort forth. And then I always wanted to compete to win. I was captain of the volleyball team. I just really, really loved the leading was the other thing I didn't realize I liked, but I liked that early on as well. But yeah, I just had this innate, I loved teams and I just loved the opportunity to compete. It's awesome. And it's a a smaller niche than you might think between people who have that innate competitiveness, but are also team players, right? It's people who, I mean, would you say it's people who are just, they're hyper competitive and they're smart enough to realize that they need a team to win so they learn it? Or is it a natural, they are both innately competitive and they also really love to be on a team and work collaboratively? I mean, I think you could be 
successful in sales. And I think that your competitiveness and team naturedness can live on a spectrum. I don't think it's all or nothing. I think though, if you, what I believe is tied to teamwork and the knowing that you need to work well with a team also ties to empathy, which I also think is an important aspect of being good in sales. You have to have enough empathy to understand who you're selling to and be able to put yourself in their shoes so that you can best figure out how to establish value for them, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have value. You have to have empathy to read a room. Yes. You have to be able to, you know, go to a client and see who's engaged, who's on their phone, who's disengaged. You have to be sensitive to small personal cues. And I think that if you lack empathy entirely, A, it's harder to recognize that you need to play well with others and that you need others to be more successful. I mean, think about, you know, like Michael Jordan, he was a great basketball player, but was he great just by himself? Or, you know, could he beat an entire team on his own? Or did he actually need a team of supporting people that would help him win too? So I think that it can be on a spectrum. It's not all or nothing, but that teamwork and empathy, I do think, are you have to have some degree of that to be the most successful as possible. I think that's a, a perfect segue into the next question I wanted to ask you, because when people think of salespeople, empathy is not usually the top word that they say. And now I know a ton of highly empathetic salespeople who I love dearly, but you know, talking about that stigma, particularly that, that goes towards sales, which is one of the most critical roles at a company, going further down that, that train of thought, what is it that makes an incredible salesperson? We've talked about competitiveness, empathy, what else goes into that? Yeah. And I understand where people come from the perspective of having that perception of sales. I have to admit in college, I got an engineering degree, not a business degree. And I worked very, very hard for that engineering degree. And I'd watch the business folks party on a Thursday night. And there was no way I could afford to do that because I had a 7 a.m. engineering, civil engineering class on Friday morning. So <laughs> I feel personally attacked. That was, that was me on the <laughs> Thursday night, but you know. <laughs> And look, we're like, yeah, we're both doing great in tech now. So. Both doing well. There you go. Yeah. So I have to admit, like, I get it because I looked down my nose at the profession because I felt that it was easy. And being as competitive as I am, I was not going to do something easy. I wanted right. to do something that I felt was hard, which is why I did engineering and not business. I felt that engineering was harder. It was for me in particular. Like I said, I have to work pretty hard. I have to work my brain pretty hard to do well in that. But I did look down my nose. Now, what changed my mind? When I realized that, you know, sales is a lot more complicated than I had realized when I was looking at it from afar. I was looking at it as, oh, all they care about is money. They don't care about the client. They're knuckle draggers, you know, just doing whatever. And that was not the case. Once I was a sales engineer and I was on the sales team, I'm like, wait a second, this is actually, first of all, 50% of your comp is at risk, Mm -hmm. okay? A lot of people that look down at sales don't really understand that entirely, that like 50% of your compensation is at risk if you don't do well. Yeah. So there's that piece of it. We already talked about empathy and teamwork as core components of that. I think there's an element of fearlessness as well. Just think about it, right? You've got to talk to angry customers just like you do in success. Mm -hmm. Like you have to deal with customers where things have not gone right. And you have to have that tough conversation and listen and empathize and help that customer as best you can. You have to cold call people in the middle of their day. I don't think there's things that are much less comfortable than that. Like, no, I mean, you don't love doing that because you know you're interrupting people, but 
you have to try to get folks on the phone because it's going to be the most compelling way you have to sell is with your person, not just with a written email or a text. So I think that there's empathy and fearlessness, the teamwork element that we talked about. There was a lot more to it. And also, and I realized too, that it's about aligning value in the beginning, but there's a lot of process oriented. And you have to project manage a sale really from beginning to end to make sure that it closes. Yeah. And that takes a lot of organization. So there's kind of that organization and lots of spinning, be able to spin a lot of plates. That's part of being successful in sales too. So I realized that there was a lot more to it and it was a lot more fun and that, you know, I kind of found my people when I got into sales, but that's kind of how I look at it. It's like, I understand the perception, but I think if you were to walk in the shoes, then it's easier to have a bit more respect for it. Definitely. I might've said this before on the podcast, but when I first got into the way I got into customer success was similar to you. I was just vaguely different, but I was, I was scared of sales. Like I had a preconceived notion and I, w- I knew how the comp would work. So when I interviewed for my first role, they offered me a sales and a CS position and asked which I wanted. And I was like, oh, I want the customer success one so badly. But really it was just that I was scared of sales. And then I, f- I found out later that was a-, a test to see if I really wanted something or if I'd take everything because I was a new grad. So, you know, fortunately that worked out to be a great move for me. But yeah, had I known like the... I would say the most valuable skills that I got as a CSM were skills that I learned from our sales team, like how to do proper discovery calls and how to deal with difficult people. Like there was all these skills that salespeople use and are incredible at that CS people need to be amazing at as well to be very good at CS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels what success has to do and what sales has to do. There's a very kind of nuanced difference, I think, as to why someone would choose a success path versus a sales path. But you're right. A lot of those skills are very similar. Definitely. So we talked about the sort of core skills of salespeople, what they need to be great at, what their personality needs to be like. What about sales leadership perspective? I've heard you speak a bit about the Zendesk Rising Stars program before. So what makes a great sales leader and how does it differ from what makes a great sales person or account executive? Yeah. So I think that What makes a great sales leader is similar to what makes any type of great leader. I don't think it's necessarily just tied to sales. And I think that regardless of what kind of individual contributor role you're in, that what happens to most of us is we become top of our game at whatever that individual contributor role is. And then we either decide that management is the next logical path, or we really feel we desire a leadership role. We're put into that leadership or management role but we're not usually given much instruction as to what does good look like when you're in that new role. That's how I found myself when I first got into sales. I mean, I talk about this all the time with my team. I feel like when you're dropped into management, you kind of come in at one end of the spectrum. You either come in as like, you know, the buddy, everyone's best friend, you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, or you come in way too harsh and strict and you have like no wiggle room for anything. Like it's my way or the highway type of thing. I think it's hard to, I think that's natural to kind of come in at either end of that spectrum. But over time, you have to, if you're self-aware enough, you've got to realize where are you at and how do you bring yourself closer to the middle? So which side were you on when you started? I was not on the buddy side. (laughs) No, because I have very high standards for myself. And I started to project those very strict guidelines and high standards on everyone. And I realized that, gosh, you know, this is not how I'm going to get people to want to work for me. You know, I think I quickly realized that, hey, listen, 
the way to build loyalty is first, I got to block and tackle for the team. So what can I take off of their plates that's preventing them from being more efficient today? That's my number one job here is like, let me block and tackle for them. Now, in terms of the accountability piece, I'm like, well, I can't hold them accountable for things that I never told them I expected. Right. So now I have to be really clear, right? You got to be really clear on what you expect to the level of detail that you probably think is too much level of detail. But as over time, I've realized it's usually not. (laughs) So be more explicit than you think you need to be. Set those clear expectations and then hold people accountable for them. I think the other component I kind of layered into there that I think is also important is to connect with people first and understand them as people. I pulled a lot from Radical Candor, which is something I read several years ago. And I really loved the approach of if you're going to be able to provide tough feedback, you want to have built that rapport and trust with the individuals first. You can't just come at them and expect them not to be defensive if you haven't established that level of rapport first. And I do care a lot about my team. So that was actually pretty natural for me to learn about everyone under, you know, a bit about what do they want to do? Make sure you understand their career direction. Maybe they're super happy where they are and want to be ICs forever. Maybe they too want to be managers. Maybe they want to be VPs someday or CROs, whatever the case is. And so I kind of layered on all these components that kind of brought me back to the center, but I have to be careful because even today, if I start to feel like people are complaining too much or I've been really clear, but things aren't still followed, I can see myself kind of going back to how I was in the beginning. So you, I think it's a, it's a self-awareness piece that's super important when you're in leadership, but net to net it out, I think you care about your people, you set clear expectations, you hold them accountable for those expectations, you have your team's back and you understand them as people and as individuals and as professionals and how to help them. I think those core components help build a loyalty and engagement and then hopefully drive lower attrition on your team. Awesome. So when you're looking at maybe promoting someone into a, a leadership role, I mean, I think, so what I see a lot or in what you talked about earlier is that people will do incredibly well as an IC and then maybe they want to stay an IC, maybe they want to become a manager, but Often we see people that do really well as an IC just be moved into managerial roles by the company because they figure, oh, you're you're killing your quarters. You know, you're our top salesperson. If we put you in this leadership role, then all our salespeople will become, you know, to, you'll be able to up level everybody. How do you like approach that or kind of feel out those other skills? Like, how do you determine if you should move that kind of person who's more suited to a managerial role and or not? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's different ways to approach it depending on the phase of your company. If you are a smaller company and you're moving fast and you want to promote from within, but you might not have a large enablement infrastructure yet, right? Because it's still a little bit on the early side and that that's an investment that usually comes later in a company's evolution. So if you're earlier, then the things I'd look for are, you know, you want to demonstrate that you're kind of going above and beyond and starting to lean in on some of the tasks you would do as a manager. As an example, you're mentoring new hires. Like let's say you're let's say you're an individual contributor, either in success or sales or whatever the case may be. Maybe you you mentor new hires. You come up with best practices and you proactively share them with the team. You come up with some kind of new approach that uh, you can codify and build into the onboarding or you help with components of the onboarding program. 
I remember as a manager, or as a rep, and then as a manager, I we built the first onboarding program at VMware back in the day when I was there. So I think you can see people who are naturally want to help others and are leaning into helping the team on a broader sense. Mm-hmm. I think those are some early, like those are indicators that they might have leadership or management, you know, chops. Like that might be a good skill set for them. Now, if you're more mature, what we did here, because our company is a, a bit bigger and we've got enablement, is that we I built out a program. The, you mentioned it earlier, the Rising Stars program. It's six months and it's intended to give you exposure to things that you're going to have to do as a manager and as a leader so that by the end of the six months, you can determine whether or not leadership is a something you want to pursue or not. Mm. So it's not, you have to do management if you do this program. The program is be like, because we've had people that have gone partially through it and said, you know what, this is definitely not for me. I want to stay as an IC and they'll exit the program. And, that, and I look at that as a win Interesting, because, you know, otherwise you don't have to just try on the shoe before you buy it. <laughs> just see if it fits. Exactly. <laughs> well, we don't always get that opportunity, right? Especially for things like management and leadership. So I think that's a fantastic idea to run. Right. Yeah. It's worked very well. We actually have a full class every six months. We've got a full class of people that are interested. And sometimes they just want to learn a bit about how to be a leader on the team, even if they don't want a manager role. And they just mm-hmm. learn a bit more about what are the components of leadership and how can I demonstrate that a bit more, even if they want to be an IC. So we, I have found it to be a very successful program. Well, even the idea of, I mean, I've found that the more I've learned about management and leadership, the better I've been at being managed and being led. You know what I mean? Like you understand that goes back to the empathy sort of, right? You understand how, how everyone's thinking and looking at situations, which helps you to work together better. Yeah. Another question I'm excited to get your thoughts on because sales has been a predominantly male dominated profession, especially sales leadership, you know, sadly continues to be one of those areas. And yet you've had this incredible career. You're leading this massive sales team at one of the top tech companies in the world. I've heard you share before the stat around, I've talked about this a lot with some folks, around men will go for a promotion when they're at 60% of readiness or confidence and women wait until they're at 110% ready to go for the role. And I think that's one of the causes, underlying causes of a pay gap and, and a whole bunch of issues. So I'm curious what your approach to that has been. What do you attribute your career success to? Yeah, I wish there was more women in leadership. I try to encourage it. I mean, I feel fortunate that on my team, you know, out of five direct reports, I have four women Nice. So, Excellent. Yes. I wish that was the case. I think it's easier to have more females on your team when you do have some female leadership. Definitely. But here's some of the advice. I And I love this topic because I think a lot of women shy away from leadership. And we're kind of taught from a very early age as women that, unfortunately, what looks good when... And I have, I have school-age children. What looks good in a classroom teaches women that being quiet... And listening and following orders and waiting your turn is what good looks like. And for some reason, you know, I have a a son and a daughter and the boys still kind of do do as they will. They've a bit more energy. They're a little harder to contain. And so they kind of go against the rules, not really meaning to, but they kind of do. Mm -hmm. And they find out there's nothing really bad consequence around it. So I think from a very early age, we're kind of taught that following the rules and staying in line is the right thing to do. So I think that could be part of it. And then psychologically, I think we feel like leadership looks, especially in sales, like a certain way. Okay. You imagine a male sales leader who maybe, right? 
I mean, that's what you picture. <laughs> Probably uses shame a little bit too much to yeah. control the team, a little bit too much shame, a little too much fear, only focused on the numbers, not necessarily focused on the people. And I'm not saying that this is all men. It is certainly not all men. I've worked with so many amazing leaders of all genders. But I think stereotypically, you think as a woman, well, you know, that's not me. Like you hear men brag about how many nights they spend away from home. Right. Like that's a bragging right. How many points they have on United or how many points they have in a hotel and how many. Isn't that sad? It is. I think that that shouldn't be the benchmark of. Especially with United. <laughs> well, I'm in the Bay Area, so okay, <laughs> it's a United hub, so kind of stuck. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, because I grew up too with that as the benchmark, not mm -hmm. being home. You're not spending time with your family. You're not working hard enough if you're not constantly working 24 hours a day. And when I became a mother, I had to think about, well, is there a different way for me to lead and still balance my life? Mm -hmm. Or does leadership only look like one thing? And so what I determined is I've been very successful, but I lead in my own authentic way. Mm -hmm. I care about my team. I care about my family. My family still comes first. I work very hard but I'm also still focused on the family. So I think that the advice I'd give to women is leadership does not look like one thing. It doesn't look like one person or one stereotype. You can absolutely bring your authentic self to a leadership role and make it your own. It doesn't have to look like perhaps what you have imagined or what you have painted in your mind. And I highly recommend Abby Wambach's Wolfpack. I listened to it because I don't have a lot of time to sit and read, but I can listen and do my chores. So I highly recommend either the book or the audio book because she really brings up, listen, men have been able to be in jobs and fail and get rehired and it's never an issue. And we feel like we can never fail, mm. but everyone is going to fail at some point and you can't be afraid to lean in because you might be afraid to fail because that's going to happen to everyone. So I don't think you can let fear or a misconception of what leadership looks like from holding you back. I think you have to believe that, no, I have an authentic leadership style. Everyone has that. And I can lead just as well as anybody else. Definitely. I love that. Fantastic advice. You touched on a few things that I really appreciated. The fact that one of the biggest things you attribute your success to is leading through authenticity, like leading in a way that's really true to you, which at least in my experience has seemed to be like the key to everyone who, uh, who, you know, I look up to and who is doing amazingly in their role, it's because they're tapping into a really authentic method of their approach. So when it comes to leading a large sales team, I mean, obviously, that's something that's really foreign to me. But I think in order to do anything well, you have to really love what you're doing as well. So I'm curious what you love most about your job. Yeah, so I have always loved being part of a team. And for whatever reason, I love leading a team. I don't know what that potentially says about me, but I enjoy thinking about what does the team need right now? You know, do we need inspiration and recognition? Do we need a little bit of a, hey, listen, this is where we're at. We need to push a little harder. Do we need a different program? Like I love thinking, you know, kind of bigger picture of, you know, I got a lot of feedback that people felt that there didn't have a lot of career growth. And that's actually where the Rising Stars concept started to come from. Mm. I love thinking about how I can lead better. And I also love thinking about how do I build a repeatable environment so that I can hire a large team 
and be able to plug them into my system. And even if they maybe are a B or a B plus, I can have them perform at an A. I like thinking about what does that look like in sales? That's usually a defined sales process and methodology that, and with some rigor and process that people understand how to move their deals through. I'm sure in success, it's similar. You have to have a playbook on what does good look like? What should be the outcomes? What are the customer verifiable outcomes you're looking for in success? What are you looking for in sales? So I think for me, it's twofold. It's the leadership component. How do I inspire and lead? And how do I drive the strategy of the team in a way that's going to keep us highly as productive as possible? And then how do I just really make sure that the selling component, the nuts and bolts of the job is built in a scalable way that I can continue to plug new players in Mm -hmm. and scale the organization in a way that doesn't require me to hire everyone who knows how to do everything perfectly out of the gate. I need to be able to hire diversely. Um, I need to hire people that might be coming from out of industry. Mm -hmm. I need to be able to plug them into a system and have them be successful. So I think those are kind of the two fronts that I enjoy the most. Interesting. (laughs) It ties together pretty nicely, but I'm curious on on a couple questions there. So the first one, how do you balance plugging someone to a structure, giving someone a playbook? Because this has always been my struggle. It goes back to what we were saying about authenticity and, and leading in your unique perspective, right? You have the things that are unique to Jamie, but if you're told, here's your structure, you know, execute this playbook, then sometimes it removes the uniqueness and it doesn't leave room for you to put whatever spin it is or, or whatever approach that's personal to you. Like, how do you balance those two things, plugging new hires into a process but mm-hmm. still leaving enough wiggle room that they can figure out what their unique flavor is for the role? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm going to give you an analogy for right. that. I love analogies. <laughs> I think better in pictures. So imagine that you're on a road and I've given you a set of markers that you have to get to, okay? And they're spaced at some distance apart. Now, you start at point A, you have to get to marker number one, I don't really care how you get from point A to marker number one. You could walk, you could run, you could skip, you could cartwheel, you could ride a bike, you could ride a tricycle, you could ride a unicycle. I don't really care. Do you hop on a car, hop in an Uber? It doesn't matter to me. Get from point A to point B in any creative way you want. But at the end of the day, I'm still going to need to get you to point A to point B, et cetera. Right. So I think the way that I balance process and authenticity and uniqueness is there are certain milestones, if you will, or outcomes we're looking for Mm -hmm. from our clients along our sales process, but everyone is going to bring a unique way in which they get to each of those markers or those milestones. So I think that it's very possible to balance both of those things. I'm not telling them this is exactly how you walk from point A to point B. Right. I'm just saying when you get here, I want to know that do nothing is off the table. Now, how you get there is going to be up to you. But at the end of the day, that's what I need to verify by the client. Right. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah, it's a challenge. But I think when you can strike that balance right, that's when you get the best functioning teams and the happiest teams as well. When people feel like there's something unique to them that they're doing their own way. So people feel threatened in one of several ways. And lack of autonomy is certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. They don't. People don't respond well to a lack of autonomy. So I think you have to have... You have to balance structure and autonomy is what you're trying to go for. If you have no structure, it's like having kids with no rules. It's a disaster. They might not want the rules, but they really, really need the rules. So the reps might not want the structure, but it actually will help them drive the outcomes that they are looking for, which is a closed deal. Right. But they need the autonomy to navigate through that process a bit in their own way. 
Otherwise, yeah, they feel way too constrained and like they have complete lack of autonomy and people won't be engaged or happy if they feel completely, you know, micromanaged. Definitely. The other thing I wanted to touch on that you brought up before, you mentioned, you know, hiring diversely. Um, You mentioned before that four out of the five leaders who report to you are women. Is there anything, I mean, I would suspect that you might get more women applying to roles given the, the number of women in leadership. And women may be moving through the sales process. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but I'm curious, is there anything specific or for leaders? I mean, we all know that every hire, I forget, there, I know there's some real numbers behind this, but essentially like every additional hire that you make that's, let's say, male, the lower the likelihood that you'll be able to in the future recruit, let's say, female salespeople. So for companies that might be struggling to hire diverse employees and cross genders, do you have pieces of advice? Are there specific things that you do or you would recommend that they do? I think the way that we, this was a challenge for us too. In certain pockets of our teams, even though we had female leaders, we would end up with over-indexed on males and very few people of color. So Mm -hmm. we were pretty homogenous as a team. And where the root of that came from was that I was hiring a good portion of the team from very specific areas, from just saying geographies, right? I had three main offices for a big portion of the team. The rest, a lot of the team was located in in territory and that that did help because you could draw from different areas. What helped us the most was, you know, believe it or not, the pandemic kind of pushed our org. We were remote, not by choice initially, but then it was made a decision that, you know what, we're going to stay remote. So the the sales organization stays remote. And at first, I wasn't sure how that would go. I think all of us, it's change and you never kind of know how that's going to go. But what's happened is, is that because we've opened up to hire our teams from, they have to be within like the same time zone. It doesn't really make sense to hire someone in like, you know, Atlanta and have them cover a California territory. The time zones just don't really make sense, obviously. And you want to be closest to your clients. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a proximity consideration as well. But because we opened up and hired from many more locations, we've been able to drastically increase our female employees, people of color, because we're pulling from candidates that are all over the place, not just necessarily in a handful of of, um, specific cities. When I talk to people and they talk about the benefits of remote working, I really think the biggest advantage is being able to drive a diverse team. I think it's very hard to do. Like if you're in your New York York City and you're only trying to hire in New York City, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a lot harder. Definitely. Right. But if you open up and hire from more places, you can draw a lot more candidates and get a lot more talent. And so that I think has been the biggest benefit of changing our strategy there. Definitely. It's a huge upside. It's almost uh, makes it even a bit more difficult because you can draw from anywhere. So you've got more competition maybe between candidates, but definitely a big upside. Sure. Yep. Awesome. One of the uh, questions I, I love to ask because I think on community side of things, what I've seen through doing events and, and so some digital, but mostly in person is the stuff that I really love. But the magic moments that I've seen are when people who each have the same problem realize that they're not or struggle or challenge or realize that they're not the only one with that challenge. So you just, I mean, you, we just talked about one, right? So hiring diversely is a challenge. I think that a lot of people might feel isolated in, but it's something that big companies, small companies everywhere are working on. Is there anything more personal to or specific to you that you're struggling with or, or a challenge that you're you're working on that you think others might be as well? I think that's a great question. I think that the area within a team that I think 
you shouldn't be overlooked that I think is easy to overlook is the engagement of your frontline leaders, because they are some of the most critical components of you driving a successful organization of whatever kind of team you're driving. And, you know, what we do is I will survey, and actually we just did it, but I survey the team using the 12 questions from First Break All the Rules. I survey the team every six months and I get an engagement score out of that. Fortunately, we are way, way, way above the the U.S. average of it's very low. It's like 39% of employees are engaged and 16% are actively disengaged. Crazy. Yeah. We're nowhere near that, thankfully. So we're an engaged team, which is awesome. But what it also helps me identify is do the managers feel supported? Because it's easy to focus on your managers and be like, where's this deal? How's this going? Where's your pipe, Jen? How's this? So they're getting this pressure from us above. Mm -hmm. And then they're dealing with all the problems that the reps are bringing to them. And so they're this really kind of like, it can be a very stressful and feel like undervalued role, but it's one of the most critical roles you have. Because if you don't have good managers, you will lose good individual contributors, or you won't be able to draw good individual contributors. And if you're in sales, that means you have a quota that's the same with less people to carry it. Right. So I feel like that frontline leadership role is one that I'm constantly looking at. Am I investing enough in? Are they engaged? We're actually looking at creating a new program for them specifically. Mm. Um, that that's in the infancy stages. I can't. I don't have much to talk about that right now. But my enablement team and I are looking at it and like, how do we make sure that we keep this population as engaged as possible and invest in them because they are super critical to the success of you running the team. And I just don't, I don't think that should be undervalued. Definitely. Yeah. Team engagement. It's always crazy. I feel like I've read those stats for 10 times around overall engagement in the U.S. with work. And I'm shocked every year though. It's the poll. The, I mean, of a poll of a million people, people leave a boss, not a job. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, empowering those managers like, yeah, and people follow managers, you know, where they go as well. If a great manager goes to another company, you always have to worry about, are they going to bring people with them? Yeah. Got to take those managers for sure. Yes, exactly. There's a lot of potential risk in many directions if they're not. So yes, I really feel like that's a super critical role. And I would imagine I'm not the only one who struggles with how do I help alleviate that pressure they're under because they're under pressure from both directions. How do you best support that population so that a little bit of that is relieved and that they feel invested in? Definitely. It's a really good way to put it. Awesome. Continuing sort of talking about leadership in general. Again, I'm going to push you on a more uncomfortable question that I also love to ask, which is, do you hold any opinions or thoughts on sales or sales leadership in general that you think others in your industry might disagree with? I don't know. I feel like sales leadership in particular, you know, can come in different shapes and sizes as well and still be successful. You have sales leaders who really, really love focusing on the deals. They're like, they're the deal people. Mm -hmm. And they really like their win is getting involved in the large opportunities and, and helping the team really drive those to closure. And I think it's the earlier you are in your evolution as a company, you really need those people because you need, you need sales leaders who are going to go out there and forge a new path for you in potentially new markets and whatnot. So you kind of need that little bit of that maverick leader who's really to kind of lead out from the, the front and and really gets the thrill of the deal. I think that as the more of you scale, my belief, and I don't know if everyone would agree with me because I think some people believe that that good sales leader always looks like that. Right. I just want my sales leader to run around and close deals. 
Well, that's what you have sales managers for. But if you're going to scale a team, my belief is that you have to have some process chops to go along with your ability to sell. You mm-hmm. can't not be able to sell or you like it's like in success. You've got to be able to deal with clients. Like you have to be able to get on the phone and be help your team. So you still have to have good selling skills, but you shouldn't be the seller the larger the company gets in at that point because your job is to create a scalable system mm-hmm. which is a bit more leaning on looking at the big picture and the strategy and process more so than running deals yourself. So I don't know if the rest of the industry would agree with me, but that's kind of how, at least I've worked with a lot of startups. You guys know I worked at Andreessen Horowitz for a bit there, and I've seen companies at various stages, and I feel like the deal person is great the earlier you are, but the larger you scale, you've got to be able to think bigger picture of like, what kind of roles do you need? Where to make investment? Where to pull investment back? What do you do to make changes to the comp plan so you can strategically drive the team in a certain direction? I think you have to kind of have that vision to be able to, to scale a team. So I don't know, maybe that's, I don't know if that's controversial or not. That's just how I think about it. So would you say that kind of the further, the more an org grows and the more a leader levels up within that org, their skills almost become less, not less important, but I mean, the skills they need would become a lot, a lot broader, right? You can't be everything to everyone. And I see her when you're starting out, it's sell, sell, sell all the time, push new deals. But then you just listed off, I think, 10 different comp plans and interpersonal conflict and promoting people and processes and all these other things. So is that sort of the idea? That's how I think about it. I think about as your job, as the book of business gets bigger, you have to be looking at more of where things could go wrong and get ahead of it before it can go can go wrong. Mm. When you're earlier and you're just focusing on the deals, you're just looking at that level of what can go wrong at the deal level. When you're growing a team that's scaling, now you're looking at, okay, well, if I create this team now, but what am I going to need to do next year? And is this going to make sense? Or is this going to be a big rip and replace? And it's going to be very disruptive. So you almost have to, you're, you're kind of playing a little more checkers versus chess. Like you have to think further the more you're scaling an org because decisions you make now could become hard to unwind later. Whereas in the early, you can kind of experiment. You're running with the deals and sure, you do hunter farmer and maybe it's not going to work out. It doesn't matter. You can pull it back and do something else later. But the bigger your team gets, the harder and harder that becomes. And so you've got to think further out. What's going to be my growth strategy to keep my growth up, not just this year and the next year, but maybe then the year after that? How do I skate to where the puck is going? First, where is the puck going? And then how do I skate there? I think that's a longer term, more bigger picture thinking than just applying that thought process to a deal by deal basis. Definitely. I think uh, you know, right now at our scaling point where like every second piece is a checker piece and the others are like, we have a few pawns, maybe like a queen <laughs> in place. And we're like, okay, this is a weird game, but we're, we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it absolutely. Very natural. Very natural. Yes, definitely. I aspire to get to the point where I can proactively sit around thinking of problems that could arise in the future and then preparing for them. That's the dream. Yes. Well, I mean, you have, you're a bit more reactive mode. Yeah. You know, the earlier you are, you're kind of in reactive mode and it's hard to sit down and like, you're not kind of at that point. That's fine. You're in the experimental phase. I'm also a relentless optimist. So it'd be hard for me to think of way things that are going to go wrong. I'm just like, of course it's going to work out. We'll just, you know, figure it out. Oh, you're the dangerous type of salesperson. Whenever I find an over-optimistic salesperson, I'm like, yeah, oh no. <laughs> boy, I, I would pull that back a stage and... <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm going to tear you down to be the most <laughs> cynical version of yourself that you could ever be. Oh, that's funny. Awesome. Couple more questions I want to throw your way today. So we've talked so much about sales. It's been awesome. I've learned a ton, but I'm very curious because it seems like this is something you have been going for before you even knew it. You were on this path to being a, a sales executive. So if you had gone a completely other path and you had to, you were doing something completely different, not tech related, you could pick any job, what would it be? It's hard because I really do love what I do, <laughs> but I think that I'd use my skills. Like I love leading. I love selling an idea. If there's a way that I could put that, like put that power to good use some somewhere else, whether that's helping young women. Like I love doing, I love speaking at events. I know this is a podcast, but I miss the stage. <laughs> yes, we'll bring you out to New York as soon as we're all uh, in person again. I will be, I would love to come out. I've always loved presenting. I love engaging with people. I love getting women to think about that, you know, setting an example of that it's possible to do and you don't have to do it in a way that is completely unnatural to you. So I don't know something around that or something maybe more in the in a space that helps the environment a bit. I do have an environmental engineering degree. So I do, I do care about that. And that's always been a passion of mine as well. So I haven't really thought about it because, you know, I love what I do. And for the yeah. foreseeable future, this is what I plan to do. <laughs> yes, fair enough. No, you're not going to pivot and become an astronaut anytime soon. But no, no, no. you Just never know. Know your strengths, man. <laughs> definitely, definitely. That's the most important thing. Awesome. So sometimes I, I end episodes about asking recommendations for what to buy on, on Amazon or what to watch on a weekend. But I want to be a bit more general today because I've been reading some of these on Reddit and other places. So I love life hacks. And so I'm curious to know what's a life hack that you know could be related to work or not to work, but that has made a measurable improvement on your life that our listeners can try? Yeah. So I'll give you a very short story. But this is related to anyone who is considering being a parent, a working parent, or is a working parent. I will tell you a short story. So, you know, when I had my first child, I was very worried about still being a good worker and not allowing the fact that I was a mom to, to I didn't want to be perceived as being a bad worker because then I was a parent. So I was very concerned about that early on, you know, to the point where I embarrassingly and regrettably, you know, stayed at Lake allowed a boss to keep me late at work on my daughter's first birthday. So I didn't see her for the entire day. Didn't see her when she woke up, didn't see her when she went to bed. And I regretted that for years. However, I didn't actually change my mentality until one very specific moment. So I'd had my son and he was of bathtub age, which I don't remember now when that is. <laughs> He needed to be watched in the bathtub. It's the size of a bathtub. He is a bathtub. Okay, no, I don't. He's small enough that he would bathe in a bathtub, not in a shower, and would require supervision. So whatever right. age that is, that's what he was. He's still little. Small. He was a little. He was small. He was very small. <laughs> and I remember, you know, I was working all day. He was with a nanny during the day, and I came home, and I was giving him his bath, but I was trying to get email done because I had to leave work in time to relieve the nanny, and so I wasn't quite done with my work for the day. And so I was trying to get email done while I was watching him, and I think he either said something or he splashed me or he did something and I snapped at him and all of a sudden it was an epiphany of like, wait a second, I was gone all day. Mm -hmm. He's only going to be awake for like a half hour more. Why am I not spending this time with him and I can go finish this half hour, 45, whatever minute, amount of minutes of work when he is in bed? And it completely changed my mindset. In that moment, I remember a complete epiphany of 
From now on, when I'm with my kids, I'm present with them. I am present. I'm asking about their day. I'm learning about them. And when I'm at work, I'm focused and I'm unapologetically working because I love working as well. So I think my life hack is if you're going to be a working parent, it's okay to be unapologetically present at work and with your family. And you will never die, regret wishing you'd worked more, but you will regret not having spent time with your kids. So that's my life hack. That is an awesome life hack and awesome advice. The compartmentalization is such a difficult thing like to be able to shut off part A of your brain and turn on part B and family time versus work time, especially during COVID. I feel like it's been so much harder being at home and around this this past year. I think especially for folks that have smaller kids when the kids are still home mm-hmm. or if they're schooling from home. Yeah, it definitely has been a different level of challenge. It's going to get easier. Yeah. That was fantastic. I really appreciate all your thoughts today. I learned a ton. This was really fantastic. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Yeah, Ben, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a review and share this podcast with a friend. If you want to learn more about Catalyst, visit catalyst.io. Until next week, I'm Ben Wynn, and this was NPS I Love You. P.S. I love you. <laughs>